And now we're speaking with Ottawa-based author, journalist, and blogger Stephen Gowans. He's the author of multiple books about imperialism and resistance, including Washington's Long War on Syria, which he has provided an update for recently. So, uh, Stephen, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there's lots of reasons to invite you, and I, I haven't given them all yet. Um, I mean, on your blog, which is Gowans.blog, and I should let our listeners know about that because we used to advertise it as Gowans.wordpress.com. I don't know what happens if you go there now. So it's it's Gowans.blog. You put that in the URL bar, and it takes you right to uh, Stephen's prolific and prodigious blog in which he has, in the last week or so, written two very large articles. Uh, one of them is Washington's Long War on Syria and an Update. So looking at this article, we've talked about your book, Washington's Long War on Syria, and how it details the long project of U.S. involvement and intervention there to remove the governments that the U.S. finds uncooperative. Um, now, your articles in recent months, and not just this one, but in the summer as well, were looking at the issue of sanctions and Washington's attempt to prevent Syria from getting back on its feet. Um, and that's a major theme in your recent writing. Um, so, you know, looking back in the last few months, there is the theme of the incredible power of U.S. sanctions. In this recent article, you talk about how the sanctions are making the Syrians incredibly poor, uh, much worse off than they were before. So it obviously creates these difficult conditions. Some people are even forced to become mercenaries for pay against their own country. And that relates to what you were writing about in August in that article, Cruelty with a Point, the Continuing U.S. Immiseration of Syria, uh, this deliberate policy by the U.S. government to basically ruin the lives of Syrians so that they stop resisting. Given this situation, which you have reiterated over and over again, it seems that the sanctions are a bigger issue than people might be giving credit for. It relates to the larger issue that we don't simply need an anti-war movement, which we have at times, but we seem to need something bigger, like an anti-intervention movement to address these. Because the things that happen between the wars and the fighting can be just as costly or more than the wars themselves. So we're ultimately dealing with the continuation of war by other means. Isn't that the case? Yes. Um, and when you say war by other means... Uh, you're talking about intervention by other means. I, I guess I might make a distinction between military intervention and other interventions, uh, which would be subsumed under the category war. Um, so I don't limit war to military intervention. Under the category war, I would include economic warfare or economic interventions or all sorts of interventions in which the objective is to impose one's will on another party to deny the other party sovereignty, for example. Um, and the United States has been using sanctions or economic warfare for decades and decades and decades as a means of imposing its will on other countries. Um, a very good example of how devastating economic warfare can be is uh, the sanctions program that was used against the Iraqi government 
during the 1990s. Uh, and we know from 1991 to about 1995, I believe, or somewhere halfway through that decade, um, the United Nations or a United Nations uh, agency had estimated that about 500,000 children, Iraqi children under the age of five, had perished as a result of disease and malnutrition attributable to sanctions that had been imposed on Iraq. Those sanctions lasted for many more years. Um, so the death toll was, and, and, and the 500,000 applied only to children under five. So if we were to estimate the death toll of those sanctions, it would be likely in the millions, certainly over a million. Um, this has led some people to talk about economic warfare sanctions as in terms of sanctions of mass destruction that is creating more devastation than the weapons of mass destruction that these sanctions in the case of Iraq were ostensibly imposed uh, to prevent. Um, and others have called these kinds of sanctions economic atom bombs. And the reason they call them economic atom bombs is because you look at the number of people who perish as a result of malnutrition and disease, and then you compare that to the number of people who perished as a result of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And what you discover is that the number of people who have died from sanctions is greater than the number of people who died from um, the atomic bombings. Hence, uh, these sanctions are economic atom bombs. Uh, but they don't often arouse a lot of opposition, and they don't arouse a lot of opposition because their effects are difficult to see, unlike the dropping of an, an atomic bomb. Uh, I mean, I mean, they'd be obvious, uh, or the effects would be obvious to everyone. The effects of starving someone to death or creating disease or malnutrition, um, those are more difficult to see. But... These are instruments that countries use to impose their will on others. And it's certainly an instrument that the United States has used and has a great fondness for. Um, the journalist Patrick Coburn, uh, who writes for The Independent, the veteran foreign correspondent not too long ago, said that if you wanted to understand the way in which the United States wages war, you have to understand something about the U.S. Treasury Department and less about the Pentagon, because it's the Treasury Department that's used to um, wage war and impose the United States' will on other countries to a greater extent than the Pentagon is, or at least, you know, within the recent past. That's a very interesting point you make, because the United States does not like to fight opponents at full strength. Why would you? Uh, Iraq was weakened by years and years of sanctions, and that has been the case in other instances as well. And you refer to the Treasury Department as being part of the weaponry or arsenal and motivation against some countries. It relates to another question about why sanctions occur, why the United States needs to strangulate and attack countries, change their governments, and so on. Um, you talk about in numerous articles, how sanctions are designed to achieve a transition of power in Syria. 
to remove the present government and replace it with a different one. So in this context, with the sanctions and everything, what's it trying to achieve? What is it that Washington envisages for Syria? Um, well, we can look at it on two levels. I mean, the most immediate goal are were expressed by um, the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who says the, uh, this pressure campaign, as he calls it, largely sanctions, uh, but there are other elements of it, but the pressure campaign uh, on Mr. Assad and his backers will continue unless they agree to a transition of power. So unless they agree essentially to step down and to be replaced by a US-approved leader. Um, the special representative to Syria, US special representative to Syria, James Jeffrey, has said that the US goal is to gain enough leverage to reconstitute the Syrian government along the lines that the United States imposed on Japan after World War II. Um, again, the United States imposed a government. So here's the, here's the idea is to change a government that is acceptable to Syrians and replace it with a government that is acceptable to the United States. That's hardly democratic. We can ask, what would make a government acceptable to the United States? And I think a clue to that is provided in a declassified 1986 CIA report, which was prepared by the agency's Foreign Subversion and Instability Center. And that report expressed the view that, quote, U.S. interests would be best served by a Sunni regime controlled by a business-oriented moderate so a business person who would see a strong need for Western investment to build Syria's private economy. Um, so I argue that if you look at um, U.S. foreign policy in an historical perspective, going right back to the beginning of the United States as you know a collection of 13 colonies, um, if you look at it from that perspective, the goal of the United States has always been to remove any kind of impediment to the achievement of the economic goals of the dominant economic sector of U.S. society. And we see that here. I mean, who do we want to replace the Syrian government with? We want to replace them with business-oriented moderates who are going to invite the United States and welcome the United States uh, you know, U.S. corporations and U.S. investors to invest in the Syrian economy, which is the way they put it, invest in the Syrian economy. What they really mean is to seek profit-making opportunities from the Syrian economy. Right. Well, uh, for those who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Stephen Gowans, Ottawa-based author, journalist, blogger. He's the author of Washington's Long War on Syria and other books as well. And he provided us with an update on Washington's Long War on Syria just at the end of October. So we're talking about that and the sanctions and why the United States has imposed sanctions. And so you're saying, Steve, that the Washington wants to remove a government that is responsive to Syrians, replacing it with a government that's responsive to Washington. And of course, the U.S. documents and speakers talked about 
replacing the government with a Sunni-oriented business regime that accepts U.S. investment and having the kind of control over Syria that the U.S. had over Japan in the post-war period. So I guess my question for some listeners out there who this is all new to them, why is this bad? If Washington is to assume control over Syria and turn it into an investment climate for Washington and U.S.-based business interests, why is that something that would be negative for Syrians or to be opposed? Well, it would certainly be anti-democratic um, because this is a policy that serves the interest of a very narrow sector of U.S. society. It's essentially saying that we look at the world and we look at the world through the lens of how is it going to profit U.S. investors and U.S. corporations. And we really don't care about the local requirements of people in countries elsewhere in the world, that they exist to serve the interests of corporate USA uh, to expand the profits of U.S. investors. Uh, so Syria, for example, is a country that um, had been colonized and partitioned and abused for centuries by numerous empires, which when it achieved its independence, has pursued policies to overcome uh, its, uh, or to overcome the poverty <laughs> and the exploitation, the oppression that these empires had imposed upon it. Syria is a poor country. Um, it's a poor country because it's been colonized and exploited and bled. Um, and so it adopted policies that were aimed at overcoming this legacy of underdevelopment. And part of those policies are considered socialist, maybe not Marxist socialist, but what they called Arab socialist. So they had a large public sector, still have a large public sector, a very big public sector, according uh, to the president. Um, and this has always irritated the U.S. government, because if you have a large public sector, if you have many state-owned enterprises, if you're regulating foreign investment, by definition, what you're doing is denying U.S. investors and U.S. corporations profit-making opportunities. And if we think about the U.S. government as dominated by business interests, and that's hardly a controversial statement. Uh, you could read in the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal these frank admissions that uh, Washington is under the enormous influence of U.S. business interests, not only domestically, but also in terms of its foreign policy. Uh, and so that foreign policy is oriented towards scouring the globe and finding profit-making opportunities for corporate USA and U.S. investors. So you look at a country like Syria and you say there are not very many profit-making opportunities there because the government has decided to uh, create this large public sector uh, which uh, limits you know, U.S. access to uh, its markets. Um, which puts constraints on U.S. exports. In fact, the United States, you can read this if you, you go and look at uh, publicly available U.S. government documents. There have been complaints for decades about the Syrian government in Washington. Um, and these complaints revolve around the notion that uh, the Syrian government is effectively communist. 
although they wouldn't call it communist. They used to call the previous president uh, an Arab communist, although he certainly didn't consider himself an Arab communist. Um, and they complained about the current president as you know, following in the footsteps of the previous one. The State Department has complained uh, that uh, President Assad hasn't allowed the Syrian economy to be integrated into the U.S. economy. So it hasn't, as they put it, reformed the economy to open up its markets and to welcome foreign investment. In fact, the U.S. State Department has complained that the Syrian economy is based, quote, on Soviet models. Um, and then, you know, Washington harbors these grievances about Damascus's support for Hezbollah and the Palestinian National Liberation Movement, but it also has very strong reservations about the Syrian economic model. And I think the thrust of its foreign policy is to pry open Syrian markets and to pry open Syria as a sphere for investment. Mm -hmm. And you're listening to Unusual Sources here on 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting at 93.3 on the FM dial, and also live on the internet at cfmu.ca. And we're speaking with author Stephen Gowans. Uh, Stephen, underlying everything you just mentioned is what I kind of call the Gowans thesis. And that's just, you know, a modern discussion of imperialism as it's operated in the post-war period. So essentially, you have U.S. business interests, which are global. They want to get into every nook and cranny in the world and run it for their own interests. But then sometimes you have governments that are primarily looking after their own people or are looking to spend money in the country and control their own surpluses and such. And that obviously becomes an impediment to U.S. business in that context. So you're dealing with, of course, Soviet countries during the Cold War, that would have been a major impediment, but also non-Marxist socialisms like you might have in Syria or Libya, even countries that are economically nationalist. Um, mm -hmm. So anyone that is deciding to plan how they're doing their own spending and not involving the U.S. becomes an impediment to U.S. business interests and therefore has to be overthrown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, resource nationalists, socialists, whether they're Arab socialists or Marxist socialists. Uh, if you look at the list of countries whose governments must be replaced, according to Washington, all of them have substantial public sectors or are resource nationalists in some way. Um, so if we look at the countries that the United States uh, wants to conduct what we call regime change, but it's really replaced the government that is acceptable to the local population, which one that's acceptable to U.S. corporations. I mean, who are they? They are Iran, which has substantial public sector and seeks to control, as you put it, its own economic surplus. North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, which we could call a resource nationalist country. Uh, we can argue argue that, that there is an attempt to overthrow the government. They, they actually it succeeded in Bolivia, although that seems to have been reversed, and that seems to be related to the need for certain minerals that are used in the, the development of uh, electric batteries, in which the Bolivian government uh, under Morales was talking about, these are our resources, which we will 
sell to you on our terms, not on your terms. And this happened to Libya as well under Gaddafi. And this became clear about a year after he was uh, overthrown and assassinated or murdered. Um, became clear when it was, uh, there were articles in the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about how the oil industry had complained to the State Department about Gaddafi's uh, so-called resource nationalism and how something had to be done to oust them to overcome this resource nat- nationalism, which was, you know, wreaking havoc with uh, the oil industry's profits. Mm-hmm. I should point out that the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War at hcsw.ca has involved itself in a number of petitions to oppose sanctions. And we can talk a little bit about that, but certainly with reference to the case of Cuba, um, Iran, Syria, particularly during the time of COVID, where it's been outrageous to place countries under sanctions. Uh, there have been petitions uh, to that effect. Uh, I think uh, it, it's some some months in the past now, but that, that is one thing that's being done to address that. So um, the United States uses sanctions, and obviously that's a major focus of your article. I'd remind people it's called Washington's Long War on Syria, an update available on Gowans.blog, and it has been a theme for several months, if not longer. Uh, so sanctions are one tool in the arsenal Um, But in this recent article, you also point out that uh, the United States is not averse to making use of various terrorist organizations to destabilize countries. So the United States is not fond of countries that have an independent economic agenda, and they're not fond of terrorists that attack America, but they seem to have no problem with terrorists that attack independent countries. And They've used terrorist groups to undermine uh, Syria, Libya, and Iran, for instance, among many other. Uh, In the case of Syria, they have been open to the idea of al-Qaeda-like groups weakening the government and even giving money and support and training and moving people in some cases. So that seems to be a terrorism that they support in this context. Yes, and uh, in Syria... I mean, there had long been a struggle between the secular Arab nationalists and the uh, like Muslim Brotherhood-inspired jihadists. Um, this was a struggle that was carried on at an armed level. Um, it's a struggle that at times was hot and at other times was cold. And the United States had deliberately um, fanned the flames of this you know, ongoing insurgency until it became a conflagration and became what was called the Civil War, beginning in 2011. But if you ever explored the history of Syria, you would see that the so-called Civil War had been going on for decades. Um, And this was simply a case of imperialist powers, in this case, the United States, deliberately intervening to fan the flames of that to find the embers of that insurgency into, as I said, a conflagration and to essentially incinerate the country. Um, And Al-Qaeda was involved. This Al-Qaeda that the United States claimed to oppose 
and to be carrying out a war against this war on terror was actually became its ally of convenience. But the United States has a long history of using jihadists as allies of convenience against communists, Arab nationalists uh, within the Arab and Muslim world. But there's a, uh, the Al you could divide Al Qaeda into two kinds of uh, approaches or two groups. There's uh, one group which followed the kind of the, uh, the uh, Osama bin Laden idea, which is to take the war to the so-called distant enemy. And Al-Qaeda's motivation was to drive the United States out of the Arab and Muslim world. Their analysis was and is that the United States dominates the Arab and Muslim world through what they call veiled colonialism. Uh, so they have a bunch of uh, essentially viceroys who are uh, operate at the behest of the United States um, in Saudi Arabia and, you know, in, in the Emirates and Qatar, Kuwait, et cetera, et cetera. In the Al-Qaeda view, these people are simply servants of the United States. And so, therefore, if you're going to drive the United States out of the Arab world, uh, what you needed to do is take the war to the United States. So right now, there's a so-called Khorasan group, uh, which is said to follow that strategy and to be plotting against the United States and to be hiding out in Syria. And the United States uh, military and the CIA frequently carry out drone attacks against the so-called Khorasan group. But then there is the other strategy, and that strategy is not to take the fight to the distant enemy, but to take the fight to so-called local enemy. And this local enemy, in the case of Syria, are those who are considered unbelievers or heretics or atheists. Or, uh, and so unbeliever, a heretic, an atheist um, could be the Arab nationalists, and again, I should point out, in case I haven't pointed out, that the, uh, the current Syrian government is led by Arab nationalists, secular. Um, and the unbelievers can be, uh, you know, uh, religious minorities. This helps the United States enormously because with this Al-Qaeda strain based on taking the war to the local enemy, simply creates divisions within the Arab world. It's the, you know, divide and conquer strategy, preventing the global South from coming together to jointly uh, address um, the oppression imposed upon it by the global North. And so, as I said, the United States seeks these Al-Qaeda groups pursuing this local strategy uh, as a way of achieving their foreign policy goals within the Arab and Muslim world, while at the same time opposing the alternative Al-Qaeda strategy of taking the war to the distant enemy. There's a few things there. Uh, you mentioned the Global South coming together to perhaps resist the attempts at domination over them by the United States. That itself might be an issue we have to cover at some point 
in the future because I think some of these efforts might start to gain steam at some point with the, uh, the difficulties the U.S. is facing in its hegemony. But nonetheless, the United States is, is very strong very strong in its ability to undermine countries. And that's something you point out. I know that uh, in your article, for instance, you mentioned that Syria has made military victories against the terrorist groups that are supported from outside and has been able to restore its control over much of the country. And that may be cause to celebrate, but it does not mean that the war or the conflict is over. And that seems to be what you're trying to get into people's heads, that just because uh, a military component of the conflict in Syria is waning in some respects at some times, uh, the overall campaign to undermine Syria and replace its government is an ongoing project, always ongoing, and that's something that Washington strives for for decades at a time without interruption. There's some good aspects in terms of people's consciousness here because there is growing awareness that the United States has this ambiguous relationship with terrorist groups where it condemns them sometimes and supports them at other times. And there is some realization of that increasingly, um, which is good. The sanctions, people seem to be more advanced on that issue back in the first Iraq war, the first Gulf war. In the aftermath of that, there was part of the movement and the anti-war movement was the opposition of sanctions. And there was some attention drawn to the devastating consequences of sanctions against Iraqis. And that was before the second Gulf War, before the invasion of Iraq. So people did understand at that time there was some understanding which seems to have receded. Uh, so I'm glad you're able to address that. Um, if we look in terms of takeaways from what you've said today and what you wrote in the articles I mean, in the article, you talked about the Caesar sanctions, uh, which is this latest round of sanctions uh, against Syria. I spoke with uh, Rick Sterling about that as well when, when the sanctions were introduced. And there's other measures that the United States has been taking to prevent Syria from getting back on its feet. So in the article, you talk about this duty of internationalists to expose what our own countries are doing. So I talked about the petitions that the coalition uh, the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War has participated in to call for an ending of sanctions. Let me let me remind people, we called for a complete end to all sanctions. During this period of COVID-19, it's especially unjustifiable to put countries like Cuba, Syria, Iran, and many other places under sanctions when there's a need to get medicine and food and distribution of all sorts of life-giving materials. So we've been part of a campaign to, say, drop all the sanctions. So what do you think concerns citizens in the U.S., Canada, uh, other imperialist or imperialist-aligned countries should be doing to oppose the overall project of intervention in Syria and in sanctions generally? Um, well, just before I get to that, I mean, you're talking about the sanctions and their effects at a time of a, a global pandemic. Uh, the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, has pointed out that Syrians are trapped, quote, between hunger and poverty and deprivation caused by this war that the United States has waged on Syria, which um, has been waged largely through uh, economic means. And on the other side, death from the coronavirus. Um, so just to underscore the point you made. Now, in terms of how people ought, or what kind of duty 
those who are concerned about democracy on an international level, what kind of duty they have. I mean, the Syrians have a duty, as been pointed out by the Syrian president. And he says, our duty, that is the duty of Syrians, is to liberate the remaining territories to restore our territorial integrity and to protect our people. And we're going to liberate every inch of Syria because this land belongs to Syrians. And therefore, it is our duty uh, to liberate our country and to resist its recolonization, because that is what the United States is attempting to achieve, the recolonization of a country uh, that managed to escape its colonial past and has managed to pursue independence um, there are very few countries in the in West Asia, or even we could broaden this to say the Middle East and North Africa, that are truly sovereign and independent, that exist apart of, from the U.S. empire. And those countries are Syria, uh, Iran since 1979, and not a country but an organization, Hezbollah. Um, other than that, all other countries within that region are essentially vassals of the United States, exists for the benefit of uh, the U.S., uh, you know, corporate USA and U.S. investors. So what are the obligations or the duties on the rest of us, uh, the rest of us who are concerned about democracy on an international level, or concerned about sovereignty, concerned about people being able to control their own destinies, their own politics, their own economies. Well, I think we have a duty to expose the machinations of our own countries. Also to support in our deeds and not merely in words, Syria's efforts to resist its recolonization and to recover its territory. I think we also have a duty to demand the end of foreign occupations. And that's something we didn't talk about. But the United States is occupying one third of Syria, uh, an area that includes Syria's oil wells and its best farmland. And it's deliberately occupying that territory to prevent the Syrians from uh, acquiring the revenue they need to rebuild their country. And then finally, what we need to do is inculcate in the hearts of people who live in our own countries, you know, this attitude of brotherhood with people elsewhere in the world, with the Syrians who are acting to liberate and defend their country from the predations of the United States and its satellites, including Canada. Um, I mean, if we're truly committed to democracy, to allowing people to govern their own lives as they see fit, to avoid exploitation by, um, you know, the United States and uh, corporations and investors in the Western world, then these are the duties that we have and that we should fulfill. 
I can't help but agree, of course, and um, I think uh, this is a good prescription. Um, so thank you very much for giving us this breadth and depth of knowledge you have on Syria and the region, and especially U.S. imperialism and how it intervenes and meddles and involves itself in other people's affairs. Uh, listeners can, of course, find Stephen's articles on Gowans, that's G-O-W-A-N-S dot blog, and, of course, he has written numerous books, including about Syria and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And you can check them out as well. They are referred to on the blog. So, uh, Steve, uh, thanks very much for giving us your time and thanks for being with us uh, online and on the radio. And uh, we look forward to seeing what other articles you come up with on uh, all of these cases of, of intervention in the world today. Thank you, Brendan. It was a pleasure to be here.